Efforts are underway in Springfield to make sure domestic abusers don't have access to guns. It's one measure that advocates say could better protect women and children subject to domestic abuse. The move comes the same month a little village woman, Karina Gonzalez, and her 15-year-old daughter were killed in their home. The perpetrator, according to prosecutors, was Gonzalez's husband. And the means was a firearm, one of the pending legislation likely would have taken out of his hands. Joining us now to discuss that measure and other steps that could be taken to protect survivors of domestic violence is Stephanie Love Patterson. She's the executive director of Connections for Abused Women and Their Children. Stephanie, welcome back to Reset. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Also with this is Maralia Negrone, who is the director of policy, advocacy, and research at the Net- network. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. First, let's take a minute to talk about what happened to Karina Gonzalez and her family. She went to the police and got an order of protection against her husband from a judge, but he still had access to the home and to a gun. Stephanie, from what I'm reading, this happens all too often. It does. Unfortunately, we know in the domestic violence community that um, there can be an order of protection in place. There can be um, mandates from the judge that say, you know, you have to remove your guns, you have to go to counseling, you have to do a number of things. But if there's no enforcement um, that accompanies that, then some perpetrators of domestic violence ignore those orders. And then the violence continues and can escalate um, to what we saw in this horrific case um, where someone is killed. What was your reaction when you read about what happened? I was really mortified and just really um, sad for the domestic violence community and individuals who do everything that they're told to do in order to keep themselves and their children safe. Um, She did everything right. She went through the proper procedures to secure an order of protection, but it still didn't save her. And the other thing that I felt was that um, the knowledge that we know in the DV community that um, orders of protection aren't always the sort of um, fail-safe thing, remedy to keep people safe. Leaving is definitely um, one of the most dangerous times for victims and survivors of domestic violence. Right, because even with that order of protection, he had access to the house. How was that possible? Uh, Again, if there's no reinforcement uh, or enforcement, I should say, of the mandates in that order, um, then no one's checking to see if after the court hearing has happened and um, they receive the orders that the perpetrator is actually leaving the property. No one's checking to make sure that the perpetrator is actually um, surrendering, uh, surrendering that gun. And so some perpetrators of domestic violence that we know, they don't even care about orders of protection, quite honestly. Um, their desire for power and control overrides even what a judge may say. And so how it happens is um, that power and control is so intense that they just say, well, I don't care what a judge says. I'm going to stay in this household and I'm going to do whatever I want to do, which means continue to threaten, continue to harm. And again, in this case, um, escalated to murder. Yeah. And so the order protection didn't stop him. But he also he being the husband, Jose Alvarez, had his fire firearm owner's ID, known as the Floyd card, Mm -hmm. revoked by state police. But he still had the gun. That seems like another major oversight. It really is because there has to be some follow-up to make sure that this gun 
um, is actually um, surrendered in a secure place. Um, And I would also say to just, um, it's interesting because there may be other guns. This one was registered. He had a Ford card for this, but I was saying this morning um, that it could be, he has other guns um, in the household. But if if there's no real follow-up to this, then um, that person can escalate. Um, They often use any type of situation, including securing orders of protection, um, as an excuse to escalate the violence in the household. Because under current state law, there is no clear process for removing the gun. Is this something that DV advocates have had on their radar before? Oh, yes, always, because we know that, um, you know, one of the things that we do in domestic violence services is we will talk about kind of the situation in the household. We will talk about whether or not even um, the victim even thinks an order of protection will really be a good remedy for them, because we know, um, and really I should say they know better than we do, um, just what the dynamics are in that household and whether or not that person will actually um, adhere to those mandates or just completely ignore it. So it's not something that's new to us. Um, My colleague and I were talking this morning that it happens all too often um, in communities all over the country. Marlia, the bill passed by the Illinois House would streamline this process. It aims to ensure that when a judge grants this order of protection, a seizure order for a firearm would come right with it. What do you make of that? So really, as Stephanie was saying, Karina did everything she was supposed to do to secure safety for herself and her kids, and the system just failed her. Part of that is because current state law doesn't have a straightforward, streamlined process to ensure that when an order is entered, the firearms are removed, seized in that moment, and the FOID card is surrendered back to ISP. Automatically, when an order of protection is entered, that person has 48 hours to give back their FOID card to ISP, and also fill out what's called a disposition record that says, I'm going to hand over my firearms to someone else who legally owns a a FOID card and can have these firearms. But that is just a piece of paper. It's administrative. It's paperwork. There really is no accountability. So the bill, what it's trying to do is ensure that when an order is served and a judge has said there is a threat of a firearm in the home, at the ex parte stage, which is the, the most dangerous stage, it was the stage that Karina was in in the, in the order protection process, um, that a seizure order has to accompany that order of protection. Where law enforcement shows up, they say, here's the order of protection, and here is also a seizure order. You have to, a judge is saying, in this moment, give your firearms over to me. You cannot fill out a disposition card. Your FOID card is revoked, and you need to hand those firearms over in this moment, or you are in violation of the order of protection. Lawmakers are also working to make sure someone just can't give that firearm to a friend or another family member. Yeah, absolutely. That is part of the legislation is ensuring that when the order is entered, you cannot fill out a disposition card. You cannot transfer these firearms to a friend or family. You have to surrender to law enforcement. That is your only option because a judge has said you are a threat to this petitioner and to their family. According to reporting from the Sun-Times, in Cook County, more than 37,000 FOID cards have been revoked. And of that number, around 27,000 are quote-unquote non-compliant, meaning people likely still have their weapons. What's both of your reactions to that? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely a pervasive problem. It's one that I know the domestic violence community has really been engaged in, and, and the network has done a ton of trainings and work on this to really 
um, train advocates and let them know, you know, when a petitioner goes in pro se to order, you know, file an order of protection, what are their options in terms of removal of a firearm? And as Stephanie was saying, you know, is an order of protection the best option because a firearm is involved? And really, this bill is trying to have some accountability, some some a clear measure to make sure that the firearms are removed in these situations. And I would just add one of the things that we do um, at CAWC is to help with safety planning. We do a significant amount of safety planning at almost every stage um, in a victim situation, and certainly after an order of protection um, has been secured, because as we've been saying all morning, it's a piece of paper, and it doesn't necessarily stop bullets or, um, you know, punches or things like that. And so particularly if someone knows that there's a, a weapon in the household, there's a lot of safety planning that we do around that, that knowledge. During a public hearing last year, Cook County Sheriff's Police said that they did not have the manpower or money to recover those weapons, which is disheartening to hear. It seems like a clear sign that person subject to domestic violence is overlooked. And, you know, we keep you all keep saying a piece of paper and this piece of paper is just not enough. It also is a message of the sort of value of lives of victims and survivors of domestic violence. And so, unfortunately, that whole dynamic feeds into what some perpetrators will say, nobody really cares about you. Um, Nobody's going to come and help you. Um, And so when people ask, even in 2023, um, why don't they just leave? Um, One, you know, where are they going to go? And the people that are asking that always say, are you going to take them with you, knowing that there's a violent, you know, perpetrator kind of actively looking for them? Um, But it just is an example of the resources that need to be poured into um, all entities in order to help provide protection um, for some of the most vulnerable in our population. Um, And so it makes me sad when I hear systems like that say, we don't have the resources for it. Um, Why don't you have the resources for it is the question that I ask. And what are you doing to, uh, to garner those resources to help keep individuals safe in our communities? Marley, are there any other loopholes that are out there? Anything else that the government can do to make people safer? Yeah, absolutely. I would say, you know, the the bill that we've introduced and pushed and that has passed the House does a couple of things. One is the accompaniment of a seizure order when an order of protection is entered to, again, enforce the actual removal of these firearms in the situation. There's also the boyfriend loophole in our firearms restraining order statute. Right now, intimate partners and ex-dating partners cannot petition for what is commonly referred to as a red flag law. Um, And so what part of our legislation does is include intimate partners and ex-dating partners in our FRO statute so that in cases where a survivor is not seeking an order of protection, they they have another means, another legal procedure, an avenue to get firearms um, relief in those situations. And then I would say another another thing that our legislation does is um, it also allows for uh, a fro to be accompanied with an order of protection so that if a search warrant is, is needed um, and a seizure order doesn't suffice, that can be done in partnership with the order of protection. Um, and then again, the transfer of ownership. So it closes that, which is the biggest loophole, so that if I you know, have an order of protection against me, I can't just transfer my firearms to my brother who lives in the same household as me. I still technically am within my currently under statute. I'm within my legal rights to do that. And it's a loophole. 
because I'm living in a home where I still have access to the firearms and, and you know, I'm, I'm doing it legally. And perpetrators know how to utilize and take advantage of those loopholes. One of the things that we do at Connections for Abused Women and Their Children is to help individuals think not two steps ahead, but 10 steps ahead for that very reason. Stephanie, when we think of domestic abuse, people may think of a man beating a woman, but that's a pretty narrow view. What forms can domestic violence take? That's a great question. Um, There's so many different dynamics to domestic violence um, that are used by perpetrators. It can be um, the physical abuse that you mentioned. There's also emotional and psychological, which is interesting on two accounts. Oftentimes, that's where it starts with the name-calling, humiliating episodes, and so on. And for a lot of individuals that we work with, they say that hurts worse than the, you know, the physical um, assaults will heal and things like that, but it's hearing over and over again how stupid and worthless you are. There's also sexual abuse. There's isolation. There's intimidation and threats. There's abuse using children. If you don't do what I want, I'll harm the kids. Um, There is economic abuse. So all of those things sort of coupled together, again, goes back to, you know, my um, challenge with the question, why don't they just leave? Because some individuals experience maybe one or two, while some individuals experience all of the dynamics that I just talked about. Um, And and isolation is huge. And I will also say in the um, immigrant community, um, threats of um, deportation and reporting them to um, the Homeland Security officers is also part of that as well. Marlia, can you talk a little bit about what the network does on a day-to-day basis? Who are you all seeing? In terms of of calls to the Illinois Domestic Violence Hotline, we administer the Illinois Domestic Hotline. And as Stephanie said, safety planning is a huge part of what we do as advocates. So our VERAs who are running the hotline and taking those calls do some of that work. Um, And we're starting to incorporate in those calls safety planning around firearms, you know, record keeping around firearms to really get a handle on how pervasive the issue of firearms is with domestic violence. As Stephanie said, there are many forms of abuse that can take place. Coercion with a firearm, right? The threat of using a firearm is is can be one of those and, and the list goes on. Um, but in terms of the work we're doing, you know, to advocate and push this bill, engaging with stakeholders, educating, again, advocates that are doing court advocacy with survivors around Um, their options, their current options um, related to what's in statute and what the parameters are um, is a lot of the work that we're doing on a day-to-day basis. And quickly, if there's someone listening right now who wants to help prevent domestic abuse or wants to help survivors, what do you suggest that they do? I suggest that they they validate um, the abuser's experience, that they listen Um, that they allow them to do what they want to do with the relationship so that they keep the window open and educate themselves around the issue of domestic violence. They can go to our website, CAWC, or the network. We're members, actually, of the network to get better uh, informed about available resources that are out there. And what exactly should you say? We've been speaking with Stephanie Love Patterson, Executive Director of Connections for Abused Women and Their Children, and also Marlia Negron, Director of Policy, Advocacy, and Research at the Network. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for covering this important topic. To read more on the specific case we discussed earlier in the conversation, head over to SunTimes.com. And if you or someone you know is facing, facing domestic violence and needs help, you can call or text the Illinois Domestic Violence Hotline any time of day or night at 
8-7-7-2-END-DB.